Support for the Forward's Bentall Brief podcast comes from listeners like you and from Edward Blank, whose generosity makes this program possible. We know you've been wondering, are Jews white? What does Judaism have to say about saving the environment? And why do so many American Jews vote Democrat? Now in its fourth season, Adventures in Jewish Studies tackles these burning questions. From Israeli pop music, to Jewish honor courts, to Jewish languages, to Jewish summer camp, each episode of Adventures in Jewish Studies takes listeners on an exciting journey that's both entertaining and educational. You can find Adventures in Jewish Studies anywhere you listen to podcasts, listen to one episode, or the entire series. have any family secrets? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I do. My children know that I am a really good speller. And they also know that I was a spelling bee champion. But a secret I refuse to divulge is what word I misspelled during my sixth grade regional spelling bee that kept me from spelling in Washington, D.C. They do not know this word. It comes up periodically. They try to get me sometimes and you know, when I might have had a glass or two of wine, try and get me to say what the word is, but I will never, never share. You can tell me. Just tell me. Tell me right now. No. Just are like no. the kids aren't listening. No. <laughs> I can't. It's like a thing. I'm a speller. I'm supposed to be able to spell words. And this word is, is embarrassing. And so I won't share it. Was it the word spelling? <laughs> We live to solve your problems. Do you have a heartache? Do you have a headache? Tell us everything. Fire your question off to B-I-N-T-E-L at forward.com or leave us a message at 201-540-9728. Again, that's 201-540-9728. Alleviating your misery is our joy. Okay, folks. You know how on Bridgerton, they're always yelling, scandal! Well, today, we, on a Bental Brief, have a juicy one that is definitely worthy of a Bridgerton-style declaration of shock. Family secrets, buried pasts, everyone's got them. First, Gina and I will discuss the question and find a solution. Then we turn to the forwards archivist, Kana Pollock, for some good old-fashioned wisdom from times past. And finally, we get a third opinion from a guest. This week, we'll be joined by Eve Sturgis, writer, therapist, and host of the podcast Everything's Relative, where she and her guests, who have all had DNA discoveries, work to change the conversation around secrets, shame, family, and identity. Okay, Lynn, are you ready? Mm-hmm. Is your corset loosened enough to let you gasp? <laughs> yes. All right. Dear Bental Brief, I'm one of six siblings in a family presided over by a chaotic dad. After lots of drama, he and my mom divorced years ago. This summer, at 76, he's getting remarried for the fourth time. I'm fine with the marriage, and I like his new wife, but I don't want to attend the wedding. My dad had a few affairs when he was married to my mom, all of which we've known about for some time. But a few years ago, we learned a new piece of information— One of those affairs resulted in a son who is now in his 30s, like my siblings and me. 
my dad has informed us that he invited our new brother to the wedding, whom he seems very excited for us all to meet. All of my other siblings are planning to attend, but I have no interest in meeting this long-lost brother. It would stick out if I was the only one who didn't go. But do I have to? Signed, unbrotherly love. He, him, his. Scandal! Is that how they say it? How do they say it? I can't do a British accent. Scandal! Scandal! <laughs> like, for real. For real. For real. Although, in all seriousness, I feel this in my gut in sort of a non-fully formed way. Just my, my first reaction is the reaction of an only child, which I am, which is, ah, what would it be like to find out after all these years that you have a sibling? And also, it made me think of the Holocaust also. It made me think of my family and people in my family who lost all their siblings mm. and the opposite of what what, did it, what would it be like to find one? There's something just very heady about that in this, for me, in this context, in that context. Yeah. I mean, I'm not an only child and still find it very heady. One piece that's sitting with me or that I'm sitting with rather are questions about how long the dad has known about this other son? Like, was it a recent revelation, like just in the last couple of years? Has he known since the child was born? Has it been 30 years of knowledge and only recent contact? Or is it brand new altogether, even for the dad? For me, that makes a lot of difference as to how this new person sort of shows up in the family and how the family should react to this new person. I feel like those are all pieces of this pie. And I'm wondering about that new brother, that long lost son. How do they feel about the prospect of going to this gathering? You know, to me, it feels like it's not fair to him either to ask him to show up to this giant shindig with 200 people he's never met, but shares blood relation to. Like that seems like a not fun position to be in. And on the flip side, to me, I feel like the big question that unbrotherly love is really asking is sort of what does he owe his dad in a situation like this. Is this one of those times when you need to take care of yourself first in, in enlightened self-interest? Or is it one of those times when the noble right thing to do is actually suck it up and do it for dad? Mm. There's also the way of thinking about it perhaps from another direction, which is around the concepts of chesed and rachmonis, right? Loving kindness and compassion. Are those values that should be really embraced here. And for the son to be able to say, I need to do this for my dad because he's my dad. And this is a kind thing to do for my dad. This is a compassionate thing to do for my dad at a very important time in his life. And then, you know, to your point, <laughs> the other, another question from brotherly love to ask himself is, do you have it in you to act with chesed to your dad and give this to him on the occasion of his fourth wedding. I'm picturing a whiteboard with the you should go, don't go on one on one side, one on the other, because there we can make a case for both. Right. You know, we can say on the one hand in Judaism, it's a simcha, you go. Right. On the other hand, we talked about, you know, chesed, but, you know, self chesed, right? Like if you just can't handle this, don't go. That's fine, too. And I wanted to dig a little bit into the I wanted to dig a little bit into the, just exploring what would it mean to go? You know, what what's 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 the opportunity? We talked about, you know, doing it for dad, even though party wants to be like, dude. But, you know, I kind of want to pick up on this thing that unbrotherly love said 
about not really wanting wanting to have anything to do with this with this you know new brother. And I kind of want to I kind of want to poke at that a little bit. I, I I get it. And again, super curious only child here. But let's let's play this out a little bit. If you are able to develop this relationship, you got one more player on the team to de- deal with an aging and ailing parent. He might be awesome. Even if he isn't, he's still blood. So there's something compelling in there that, that says to me that going could also be an opportunity to begin that cultivation. Correct. I, I agree with that, that going could be the beginning of a relationship that unbrotherly love doesn't know he wants or at this point knows he doesn't want, but might be one that he needs. Like, you know, what might happen later in life where this brother might be really great to have in his life? But I'm thinking about, okay, what does unbrotherly love do, right? We've just made the case for not going and going. First stop, talk to dad. Why does dad think that it's so important to have this new person here at this occasion? Is it just because he's, like you said, his blood? Or is there something more that he wants from these relationships later in life? Why is it important right now? Because I think it would be a hell of a lot easier on everybody if he just had a Shabbat dinner and had him over or had a barbecue and did something much more low key to introduce this brand new family member. So go to dad first, get a sense of why he needs this. And I think that's like the first step to to sort of determining how much he will, how much unbrotherly love will weigh the self-chesed versus the chesed. Also, I feel like, I know he said that the other siblings are going and whatever, but like, don't they need to get on the sibling WhatsApp and be like, dude, what is going on? Don't they need to talk this out together and figure out a united front or talk it through just to, just to process it? Like, I, I don't, I feel like there's a conversation to have there also, an opportunity just to get on the horn and, and game this out together. Right. And they might not all be on the same page. Some people might be excited to go. Others are curious to go. Some of them less than thrilled to go, but are still going. At the end of the day, unbrotherly love can only be responsible for his own well-being. But maybe knowing that his siblings are thinking about it and their reasoning for thinking about it or deciding to go might help him decide if he can rally and rise to the occasion or if he really, truly doesn't want to go and doesn't want to have a relationship with this long-lost brother. So Gina, would you go? Absolutely. I'd be super curious. And I feel like if, you know, this new sibling is going to be there, then I can handle being there. Would you? Totally. I love a party. I love a sibling. And you love a simcha. <laughs> I love a simcha. But I, I would be so super curious. And I would also be really aware that, well, just to go back to what to what Unbrotherly Love said, he said he has no interest in meeting the new brother. He didn't say that it will destroy him. Right. You know, he didn't say like, I can't handle this. It sounds like he's wondering more about like an ethical call than, a, than like, what do I do with my soul situation? If I felt the same way and I was uncomfortable, but it was okay, I would go because I would also worry more about what statement am I make, making by not going? Am I making a bigger deal that I then have to deal with much more painfully by not going than I would be just by going? Yeah, there's certainly that. And that's all to be considered. But I think that the call for unbrotherly love is you don't have to go. 
but there are some things that you should probably do whether or not you do decide to go in the lead up to the wedding. Number one, talk with your siblings to get a pulse check and make a plan. I agree with Lynn that that makes sense. If nothing else, you've got some additional insight or some moral support. And then approach dad to say, you know, this isn't really a great idea for anyone from your opinion. And maybe ask, what's up with you? Why is this important? Why can't we do this another time? I think I would really want to try to convince my dad not to do this. But if I couldn't, at least I would have made my feelings known. You don't have to meet this sibling on your dad's terms, I would say. But I'd like to say you kind of have to meet the sibling. I think that. I also want to underscore what Gina said about having a conversation with the dad. It feels almost like inviting the brother to the wedding. It feels like it's a replacement for a conversation they all need to have. Right. This is a BFD, actually. Yeah. These are like the, the skeletons are tumbling out of the closet and like and they're not ready for a wedding, you know? So I think no matter what Unbrotherly Love decides, he should take the opportunity to find a way to build a relationship with this brother, whatever that looks like. And he should find a way to turn these family secrets into conversations that build all of their relationships as well. Modern day common sense has been delivered. Now it's time to travel back in time with the Forwards Archivist, Hana. Hana, welcome back. Hi, Hana. Hi, thank you. So, Hana, did you find any good stuff in the past to help our letter writer out in the present? <laughs> I did, yeah, I think I did. Back in 1979, there's a great letter by a new old couple. Here's a little bit of the letter. Dear editor, I find myself in a situation where I need your advice. Here's the thing. When I was widowed 14 years ago, I married for a second time and we get along despite our being somewhat different in character. Now we're both in our 70s. And instead of living peacefully in our senior years, a quarrel has broken out over a serious development. I found out that my wife secretly put aside a bundle and the money is in the bank under her name. She saved for 14 years and didn't let me know about it. For the sake of domestic harmony, I proposed she add my name to the account. My wife refused, claiming she can't do it because her two daughters from her first marriage know about the money and she promised it to them when her time comes, when she passes. In other words, it's their money. That's what she said, and I'm not happy about it. I didn't know she saved money without my knowledge. We've lived together for years, and she didn't lack for anything. And now, in our elder years, we're really fighting. She even let me know that these fights could lead to a divorce. I don't want us to part, but I'm really depressed about how she's handled it. When we were married, we promised we would stay together and we combined our funds. I gave her enough money and freely so, never counting it out. But by my accounting, over half that money she saved is mine. I ask you, did my wife handle this right? I want to know your opinion and I ask you to reply. I'll be so grateful for your response. Okay, so first of all, personal finance tip. Stash a little bit of money at a time, and in 14 years, it's going to turn into a bundle. Hey, Hannah, she used the word bundle in Yiddish. Is it the same word that we use at a bundle brief for a bundle of letters in our name, the title of, of, of our show? Right. Great question. Actually, here in Yiddish, she used the term, it's like a homey phrase, a heimische. Uh, he wrote that his wife had opgespart a knipple. 
So she saved um, a bundle, not the same as a bintel bundle, which is like a little more formal and tends to lean towards more of the Germanic influences um, on Yiddish. And the knipple is, um, you know, like a stash, really, like very informal, like, like which is how I got to translating it as, you know, she stashed a bundle. <laughs> a knipple brief is where we keep the secret letters. <laughs> You could say in real street Yiddish, you could say a kupa gelt. Well, it sounds like we're in a kupa garbage kind of situation. And I understand why this letter writer is so upset. That's a big secret to find out, you know, and, and, and you would expect that there's trust and transparency in a marriage. It's a reasonable way to feel. I don't know. I mean, I do understand how the letter writer would have had a response like, what? You're my wife. I thought we had no secrets. But still, context, 1979 was still a world where women didn't always have their own money. You know, women stashed it, Jews stashed things, squirrels stashed things. And by the way, this guy didn't say, I'm giving you this money, now go buy some shoes, and I expect to see those shoes when you come home, which would have been unpleasant for other reasons. But like, he said he gave it to her. And putting it away like this is a reasonable thing for anyone to do. And it's certainly a reasonable thing for a woman to do to safeguard her financial security in some way in a world where they may still not be earning their own money. I don't know. It just seems practical. But let's get to the common theme of secrets. I think it's interesting to compare this letter to the letter from Unbrotherly Love because these are kind of different flavors of secrets. And I think there are a lot of different flavors of family secrets, right? Like there are the secrets that are kept because someone did something bad and wrong, right? And there are the secrets that are kept because someone will be hurt if you tell them. And then there are the secrets that, I guess this is similar, you know, secrets that do, that just do more harm than good if you say them. Like, what's the point? So I don't believe necessarily that family secrets equals bad or family secrets equals corrosive. And I think in this 1979 case, the wife probably thought there's no real reason to tell him. So what you're saying, Lynn, is maybe that this guy's mishigas that he's bringing to his reaction is really more of the problem than the secret itself. And maybe we could postulate that our letter writer is also bringing his beef with his dad to meeting this new sibling. And it's fine for unbrotherly love to have beef with his dad. All kids have beef with their parents. But don't take it out on this poor guy who doesn't know the family from Adam and hasn't done anything wrong yet. Yeah, I mean, totally. I think there's certainly a world in which the wife in the 1979 letter kept the money and deliberately didn't tell him why. Not because she had a big secret and was planning to you know, run off with it and join the circus, but because she felt it was the practical thing to do and felt that for whatever reason in their relationship, that if she told him, he just wouldn't get it. So in a way, it's like I'm drawing an analogy between the money and the new brother, right, who are both sort of the innocent players. And what these revelations point to in both cases are unresolved business or, or unmet needs, you know, I guess what uh, you were both kind of pointing out, which is like, you know, there's the secrets, right? But there's like the thing that was involved in the secrets, in this case, like saving money, <laughs> which normally we ascribe with like a really positive kind of attitude. So it's kind of interesting. Like that is how much this guy was bugged out by the secret, quote unquote, is that he didn't even go like, oh, wow, you managed to save money. That's kind of amazing. Right. Nobody, nobody went there. I know. Right. Like the stereotype normally would be, you know, with the woman and the money would be like, 
what? You went off and bought 50 furs and a yacht without telling me? And it's like, no, I saved it. I did the practical thing. Like, why is that an outrage? <laughs> I saved it and I saved it for the next generation, which is like also, I think, very moving and fascinating. But um, so what did the forward, you know, do? How did they turn it around? And for me personally, as the archivist, it's always fun to see when the forward like goes, you know, puts up the hand is just like, no, we're not having it. Like, no, on so many levels. So that's kind of what happened here, which really took me by surprise. So for instance, they're like, first of all, we kind of suspect that you're not telling us the whole story. Your letter is far from being complete. We don't know enough about how much money we're talking about and how much when you got married was hers, how much was her daughter's. Like, what's this? Like, you got, you know, if you got, you want us to help you, you're going to have to like, really let the secret go. Like, what is going on here? It's also a question of why your second wife, over time after your marriage, began saving money secretly. It could be that something on your end of things led to it. And it might be she saved those funds under her daughter's influence. So they're also like, you know, it's a two-way or in this case, maybe three-way street. It's like, what about you, mister? Good point. And that reminds me of something Lynn said when the two of us talked about it, which is that the invitation to the wedding was a substitute for a conversation that really needs to be had. And this 1979 letter is also pointing to some stuff that hasn't been well surfaced in their relationship, just as in the same way that there is stuff about why the dad just invited the new son to the wedding versus talking to his kids, and that there are other dynamics at play that really could use attention. And this is just a proxy for those things. I agree. But with the new ones that I don't think that her saving the money is necessarily itself an indicator of anything other than practicality and thinking of her daughters. However, the fact that they're having so much trouble talking about it. That's something parallel between our two letter writers, right? Both of these families are resistant to talking about these things, and no one really knows the whole story because they haven't actually spent the time to unearth it. And that's what's causing a lot of friction. This husband isn't saying, well, why did you do this? Why did you feel you needed to do this? And unbrotherly love isn't saying, Well, why do you want us to all come to the wedding? Why are you inviting him now? And if unbrotherly love wanted to, this is a way into a bigger, harder conversation. He could ask stuff like, what motivated the affair in the first place? And how involved was his dad with his brother's life? Have you been around for him throughout the years? What's your relationship like with this new sibling? There's an opportunity there to learn about the motivations and the needs and the desires of people closest to you. I think both the letter writer from 2022 and 1979 could take. So this is how kind of how the forward took it out. They were like, not only, you know, first they put up the hand and they're like, yeah, what's your part in this? Like, well, you know, and then they kind of went like, okay, part two, everybody, let's just be clear. We're also not bankers, but. It seems like in your senior years, right, you do kind of want to be together with your money. And if you can't come to your own conclusion, they sent them back to their friends. They said, we suggest you it would probably be wise to seek counsel from folks that you trust completely. And perhaps they can help you regain domestic harmony, which I thought was fascinating. Yeah, I I like that idea that you could go to people who know your situation and know the personalities and the players, folks who can help you understand the situation in a way a therapist couldn't, the people who've been around, seen it all, maybe extended family, maybe longtime family friends. I think the forward has a point there. 
Khanna, thank you so much for bringing us another juicy blast from the past to go with our modern day juicy one. Thank you, Khanna. We'll be right back after the break. The moment we've all been waiting for has arrived. Pray for us. The podcast about practicing ancient religions in the modern day is back. It's hosted by Jessica Dolan and JC Nacarella, two friends who both happen to be Jewish. For the fifth season, they'll focus on interviewing comedians to see how they fit faith into their lives. Some of their guests include Kat Cohen, love her, Caleb Heron, and Robbie Hoffman. And self-promo, Gina and I were just on the show. All episodes of Pray For Us are available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Rachel Fishman Federson, publisher and CEO of The Forward. We're a reader-supported nonprofit, and my job is to make us sustainable so we can continue our 125-year legacy of hosting and driving the most important American Jewish conversations. Our grandparents relied on The Forward, and we're making sure it'll be here for our grandchildren. If you care about independent Jewish journalism, please support us with a donation of any size at forward.com slash donate. And now for another take on unbrotherly love situation and the decisions before him, we are pleased to welcome Eve Sturgis. She's a writer, she's a therapist, and she is host of the podcast, Everything's Relative. Hi, Eve. Welcome. Oh, well, thank you for having me. This is really fun for me. Let's get our heads in the game. Tell us about your podcast and tell us about how your podcast expresses the work that you do. So Everything's Relative is a podcast where I interview people who have had what we call DNA discoveries. And that is a growing population of people, many of whom are doing these mail-in DNA kits that you see advertised all the time. So we're thinking about 23andMe, Ancestry.com. There's a few other ones, but those are the big ones. Uh, People are researching their ancestry because they think it will be fun and then having uh, major life-altering, identity-shattering discoveries, namely that more often than not, that at least one parent is not their parent. So Eve, you didn't just get this idea randomly for your podcast, right? You had yourself one of these DNA discoveries. This is true. I am what's called an NPE, which is someone who's had a non-paternal event. And that is when you dis- when a person discovers that a, uh, their father is not their father. So four years ago, um, a man actually just called me on the telephone to expose a complicated and very secret story about my life and my parents' life. And it sort of changed the whole trajectory of everything I do. So it changed my therapy. Uh, I work as a therapist. I'm a licensed therapist in California. And uh, it changed my creative direction. Now most of my writing is focused on this experience. And I created the podcast. I can't even begin to imagine how one processes an experience like that. And all I can say is thank the universe that you were already a therapist. You had yourself in-house. Absolutely. It could have... Uh... In all sorts of ways, uh, it could have been worse. And, you know, and, and it, it did give me a little bit of, I was thankfully in a, in a grounded place when it happened. But now, you know, especially now that I'm in that population of people and, and interviewing them and working with them in all sorts of ways, I can see how it really does matter where you are and where you come from. 
that's the link between what you do and what happened with you and what happened to all the people that you speak with um, and speak about on your podcast and our letter writer. Um, he didn't have a DNA discovery per se. He It happened with him the old fashioned way. So I'm wondering, obviously, in this case, it's not a parent. It's discovering that you have a sibling that you didn't know about. The details that may be different, a sibling, a parent, how one finds out all of those things. What general observations can you make about the kind of impact these discoveries have on people? There's lots of similarities between discovering that you have a sibling and discovering that a parent is not a parent. Um, the existential crisis might be a little bit different, but this person that wrote the letter is still experiencing seeing their parent in a new way that they never had before. It can change can change the relationship with the parent and their understanding of who their parent is or was. And it changes the dynamic of the family makeup. Um, it can create all sorts of ripples, big and small, that he even expresses a little bit in the letter. So Eve, are there clients that you see now in your practice who are contending with these types of surprises? Yes, I do. <laughs> um, I would say, yeah, a good handful of good handful of my clients are coming to me with these DNA discoveries. What do you tell them to do? So we start we start by with like very basic grounding tools of acceptance and validation about what what is going on, how are their feelings, and normalizing the experience. There are an estimated ten to fifteen percent of people that do recreational DNA tests uh, will have a DNA discovery. So. It's um it's actually happening so much more frequently than than you or I might might think. It's probably happened to someone you're in a room with, uh, and if not, it has. You just don't know it. So we start with a lot of a lot of normalizing, a lot of self care, a lot of prior, self prioritizing, learning about family dynamics, a lot of psychoeducation, learning how to accept the enormity of the situation for what it is. Do you talk to people who have mixed feelings about a discovery? that are partly happy to have discovered this news? Or, or how does that show up? Yeah, absolutely. It Just think of every single situation you can ever think of and every response, and that's what happens. <laughs> I mean, that is like, I have, there are still stories coming to me that, that are things I haven't thought of. All sorts of complicated narratives come out of these experiences. People that feel incredibly validated by this discovery because they never felt like they fit in. That happens a lot. People always feeling like they were different, especially if there were physical differences, attributes, dark hair, blonde hair, blue eyes, brown eyes, that were the opposite of their all their siblings or all their family. These kind of things can make everything make sense in a way that can be incredibly comforting for people. People come from, from families that were less than ideal and sometimes are happy to, to find a new family as adults um, and connect with them. There's happy endings and there's strained endings and there's, and actually I shouldn't even call it endings because the stories don't end. They're, go, you know, they're processes, they're going on. But yeah, people have mixed feelings all around. It can be fun and exciting to learn that you have a new family. And it can be totally devastating to find out that your family lied to you. And both can be true at once. Both can be true at once. It is the greatest exercise in duality. Our letter writer has siblings and then finds out he has yet another half-sibling. Can you speak to just the dynamics of when you have a group of siblings who now get this news? So I have an episode that aired on Father's Day that was actually from the perspective of two siblings. And they talk a lot about what it's like to discover a sibling or be discovered by a sibling. And the way that they, each person in the family, they either work as a unit or not. And of course, with every family, it's different. Sub-siblings are not very close and don't work as a team and might have incredibly disparate opinions about how to handle the situation. 
and others come together. You know, you hear lots of stories about about them all being thrilled to have another um, another sibling. So clearly you see a, a range of reactions when people get this kind of news, which is completely understandable. I'm curious, though, is there anything that you recommend universally across the board to anyone and everyone who is navigating this type of situation? Everyone, no matter how they find out or where they are in their experience, they should know or I want them to know they are not alone. This is an ever-expanding and growing population of people. So the very first thing that I would recommend doing after taking a big breath and drinking a glass of water is to find support. There are so many amazing online support resources. I also have resources on my website that will then lead you to other resources. There's a few books out there. There are support groups. We now have a website dedicated to therapists who know how to talk about this specific niche. I have a workbook that's out called Who Even Am I Anymore? All those things are available if you have access to the internet. How do you talk to people who are deciding whether or not to forge a relationship with this new person? One thing I would encourage everybody is to think about who is to blame. Not that they should be blaming anybody, but it um, so often is not the sibling. It's not the sibling's fault that their parents behaved this way and that this happened. So I would consider that. I would also encourage them to learn about how to take care of themselves with boundaries and to have an open mind. It doesn't have to be all or nothing. I would recommend therapy for everybody. I think that's so important what you raised here, Eve, about not blaming the new sibling, right? Like that is the one person whose fault it's not. And also illustrates that even one-to-one relationships are kind of like wheels with spokes of other relationships that impact them, right? And so this relationship with a newfound sibling, a relationship of a parent with a newfound child or siblings with each other and vice versa, they're all interconnected. And, you know, you recommended therapy for everybody. It feels like (laughs) that's spot on, right? Therapy for everybody. (laughs) Therapy for everyone. Therapy for everybody. When you read the letter, what did it make you, what did it make you think about? What did you, what did you wish for the letter writer? Like I said, it doesn't have to be all or nothing. I think that there are probably ways to strike a balance between going to the wedding, honoring the father, acknowledging the sibling, and keeping themselves emotionally safe from a situation that's clearly very upsetting. That's such a good point, Eve, that you've lifted up about it not having to be all or nothing. And I think that in so many aspects of our lives, whether it be relationships or work or, you know, any, anything and everything in between, we let the perfect be the enemy of the good. And that's another way to me of of acknowledging that we don't have to go all the way. We can figure out a way to sort of hold and carry all of the things and recognize that that means some things are going to be held differently, some things are going to be held better, and some things are may not be held at all, but that it is most important that we make some degree of effort You talked a little bit about the letter writer's relationship with his dad. What did it make you think about with among him and his siblings? 
who seem to be in different places. I hope they would see that there is an opportunity there among themselves to really have some really honest conversations. It can be it can be really amazing and enlightening and educational and bonding to discover what people experienced in the same household at the same time can be greatly different from one another. And this might be an opportunity to talk about that. DNA discoveries expose truths in a way that most families are unaccustomed to. And so it can be an opportunity to really, really talk about the truth. And it can be different for each person, but that can be an amazing healing tool. Well, Eve validated it. You heard it here. She said, talk about it. Turns out that it's good for you. Mm-hmm. 100%. So Eve, one last thing I wanted to ask. As soon as we saw this letter, I was really curious as to how the new brother felt. And I just thought maybe it might be helpful for our letter writer if he had some insight into how a person in that position might be feeling. Yeah, absolutely. Humans are a species that loves community. We love family. We thrive in partnership and groups. We call them tribes. We call them clans. We say find our people. Sometimes it's family. Sometimes it's not. So I would encourage all the siblings in the original core family to consider that they all had each other and this other person is coming to them as an outsider. And it's likely that they felt out of place in their own family and their whole life knowing they were missing a part of their DNA relationship. They're an outsider. They were raised an outsider. They grew up an outsider. They didn't fit in. And now they're presenting themselves again as an outsider. So for lack of a better metaphor, I think the golden rule is best used here. How would you like to be treated as an outsider? How would you like to be approached? How do you treat people that may or may not fit in but are looking for connection? Love the stranger, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. That's Deuteronomy 1019, by the way. Eve, thank you. This is so insightful. And it's, it's you know, it's no matter how you discover family members now, um, whether through DNA or the old-fashioned way, the fact that there are there is such a growing community of people who share this experience is fascinating. So thank you for your insights about them and for them. Thank you so much for having me. It is time once again for a blitz. My mom just adopted a cat. I'm desperately allergic, so I've been avoiding visiting her. But she keeps telling me to get over it and come over. When I tell her I can't visit because I'll have a huge allergic reaction, she won't listen. What do I do? My first inclination is take a Zyrtec and see if that helps, see if that works. And if the Zyrtec doesn't work, get an Airbnb, a hotel, or stay with a friend. It's really ridiculous to forego seeing your mom because of her new cat. I think the takeaway for you, allergy sufferer, is that the cat is your mother's favorite child. <laughs> so that's really what we have to address. But I think there's an opportunity here for her to pay for both your cat-free Airbnb and your therapy. <laughs> this episode of A Bintel Brief has been brought to you by Zyrtec. 
All right, folks, help us help you. Write in to bintel at forward.com or call 201-540-9728. I don't even know your question yet, but I already know we'll have so many thoughts. This podcast is a product of The Forward. Our editor-in-chief is Jody Rudoran, and our CEO and publisher is Rachel fishman Federson. This is produced by Wonder Media Network, and our producer is Alessandra Wollner. Our production assistant is Carmen borca Carrillo. Our executive producer is Jenny Kaplan. Special thanks again to Edward Blank, whose generosity makes this show possible.